something about a partisan struggle against oppression always appealed to me. And that was Isaac Agiki, the creator of the Fear Militia, and who we're going to talk about today. Name sounds familiar. It's actually a pretty recent-ish case. Um, this is Jen. This is Becky. And this is Too Close to Home. You thought we were going to not talk about another cult? We're going to talk about another <laughs> cult. When I started out talking about cults, we was going to look, I just, it's just everything, all the cults, every cult, let's talk about it. Okay. <laughs> so I, I know we just went over the active cults and that we're going to be going into Jonestown soon, but I wanted to include one that is actually another too close to home cult story. This one is from our very own Jimmy. He was in the army as a 35 Fox, which is an Intel analyst. And he was stationed at Fort Stewart with his first wife. Hey, we all make mistakes. After going through a contentious divorce and moving back to the barracks, he became prey for a cult. But more on that in a bit. So let's talk about Isaac Agiki's beginnings. This is going to make me feel old. I'm sure it's going to make you feel old. He was born in 1992 <laughs> to Edward and Annette Agiki, the third of four, four children. He was the son of an Army combat engineer in Guam, meaning he had lived on many bases throughout the country. And his grandfather was also a Vietnam veteran. So his military heritage seemed to really form his goal to become a soldier at a young age. After his father retired from the Army, he moved to Kashmir, Washington, where his father got into construction work and his mother homeschooled the kids. He said, I guess you can call my upbringing lovingly restricted. Spending Sundays in church and his parents adopting two of his cousins to raise, they seemed like a stereotypical good military family at heart. Except they were very, very conservative. The children were not allowed to date, play violent video games, and of course preach to about the evils of drugs and alcohol. They were under very conservative rules, and being poor and with a large family, that meant his parents weren't home very much due to trying to work enough to provide, which is not uncommon, and I'm pretty honorable. This also meant that he expected a lot out of the kids to excel at school and become successful, to do more than what their parents ever could have been. Isaac was actually very outgoing and smart, but homeschool left him wanting for more social interaction, which he fulfilled through joining swim teams and frequenting his youth group at the local Methodist church. Agigi said he felt born to be a soldier. He would build forts and pretend to be a militiaman, watching over his family as a child. As he hit his teens, he of course got involved in politics, as all teens do. <laughs> or as all serial killers do. Right. And was a page at the Republican National Convention in the summer of 2008, where he would claim that the presidential candidate at the time, Barack Obama, was playing the race card, and his campaign of a socialist policies was not something he could agree with. He was born in 99? He was born in 92. Oh, okay. I thought you said 99. I don't know why. And I was like, he was only eight when he was a page? <laughs> <laughs> He's starting it off early. I was like, wow. <laughs> he said, um, "This I, I have a lot of quotes from Isaac in this story. And they all come from a New Yorker article because they interviewed him. So that's where, all, and it's a great article. And they have way more quotes than just these, but... I definitely wanted to give him a shout out on that. This country is so focused on black versus white that they forget how many other races there are out there. Agigi himself is a Pacific Islander. During his senior year, he fell in love with a girl, as many teens do. But his mother told him if he could not abide by the rules of the home of no dating, then he could find somewhere else to live. And he did just that. He crashed with a friend, Matthew, and I'm so sorry if I say this wrong, as Macup. Asma, Asma Capulos. I think that's it. 
He was very respectful around people, calling everyone sir or ma'am, and was great with my parents, um, Matthew said. He got up, made the bed, and made sure everything was fine so he didn't bother anyone. During his time out of the home in 2009, he received news that he was accepted to West Point. I know a lot of people have heard about West Point, but I'm like, I didn't really know, know much about it other than it's like a military prep school. The U.S. Military Academy of West Point's mission is to educate, train, and inspire the Corps of Cadets so that each graduate is a commissioned leader of character committed to the values of duty, honor, country, and prepared for a career of professional excellence and service to the nation as an officer in the United States Army. It is exceedingly hard to enter West Point. What do you want to guess the percent of acceptance rate is? I know it's low. It's a very hard school to get into. And if I am thinking correctly, West Point is like the military's version of like an Ivy League school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is 8.6 acceptance rate. So like 91 and some odd percent do not get accepted. Yeah. And it does require to be nominated by a congressperson. So to say this was prestigious doesn't even cover it. After a bit of time at West Point, Isaac had a tutor for math. This tutor was his future wife, Deidre Wetzker, who was born in St. Louis, Missouri in 1987 to Alma and Christine. I said Christine, but I'm not sure if that's her father's name. I don't. Anyways, she had six siblings and was a homeschooled Mormon. She was also a black sheep, so to speak, so she refused to attend church and eventually went to Oregon to live with an uncle due to her rebellious ways. <laughs> she got a GED and was a massage therapist at Salt Lake City and decided to go into the military when she couldn't keep up with her bills. Being proficient in French, she was sent to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. And after a year and a half of learning Arabic, she was encouraged to apply to the prep school. Now... West Point has a rule that they cannot be married and must remain single since they are distraction for soldiers and officers, and the academy was separated by gender. They were actually, so like it's, it's a distraction from their studies and their goal to be like an elite soldier. So you definitely cannot have a girlfriend into that, and they have to sign something saying, I will remain single. But Isaac couldn't keep it in his pants, and they were caught having sex, and he was kicked out of West Point. Even though he would not be able to enter the Army as an officer because, you know, he didn't make it through West Point, he still chose to join the Army because being a soldier was all he ever wanted. Deidre didn't want to be there without him, too, so she left West Point and enlisted in the Army. She had a lot going for her. I hate when I see young kids, like, give up their fucking dreams for another fucking bonehead. (laughs) I know. The fact they were both in there was just the door of opportunity was wide open for him exactly so Deidre and Isaac were no longer banned from a relationship so they decided to go full steam ahead and get married now Deidre entered and finished basic and AIT which is a specialty training for your job in the army but Isaac had not so shortly after marrying he went to basic and then went to Fort Huachuca in Arizona to train as a 35 fox which is also what Jimmy was Hmm. meanwhile Deidre was stationed at Camp Ramadi in Iraq at the rank specialist as a linguist at this time. So Isaac arrived at Fort Stewart in Georgia in November 2010 alone. So as I was writing this story, I asked Jimmy, like, trying to get, like, gauge things, you know, because while he was obviously not involved with this, he was very close to this. And, I, of course, we'll go over those situations, but he ended up coming to Fort Stewart around the same time as this guy. That's not too uncommon to have 
you know, uh, a dual enlisted family where one's here and one's there and they're like ships passing in the night constantly. Mm -hmm. I have not went through that personally and I know you haven't either, but we have seen it plenty of times. Mm -hmm. Does Becky had been in that military life before? What? what? (laughs) (laughs) The military doesn't care about you and your spouse being together. They They make it very clear that if they wanted you to have a family, they'd have issued it to you. That's it, girl. That's it right there. They're very clear about that. You signed a contract and you must oblige that contract. Fort Stewart is one of the largest army bases in the country and the largest east of the Mississippi. I was living in coastal Georgia at the time when Jimmy had also arrived. So we are pretty accustomed to what Fort Stewart is like. That was his first duty station. I had lived near Fort Stewart for a long time. And we had like, you know, of course I've been to Hinesville several times. It is undoubtedly huge, clocking at 280,000 acres and covers five counties on the southwest inland side of Savannah. Oh, I didn't know it was that big. It is humongous. Like there's a different, like where he, Jimmy was and where these fellas were, it was like a whole different complex from the main complex. So you like went through gates and went through this gate and then went like fucking confusing. Well, there's infantry there, right? Yes. Yeah. That's why it's so big because so much of the land is used for. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of woods. They have. So to speak. So much shit going on. And then then you have Hunter Army Airfield, which is in Savannah, which is kind of like a branch from Fort Stewart. Fort Stewart is home to the 3rd ID, which is an infantry division, Mm -hmm. and is nicknamed the Rock of the Marne due to holding the Marne River safe from German forces in World War I. When you would go through the gate, they would say uh, Rock of the Marne, and what would you say, Jimmy? Top of the rock. But he would always say tip of the cock. (laughs) 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 It brings back a lot of memories, though. (laughs) I read that. Did he use that line on you, too, when y'all met? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, it was funny because, like, I, of course, worked at the sheriff's office. So my uniform looked like I was like a, I'd had BDU pants and boots and a polo with a logo. So every time I would go visit him right after I got off work, they would stop me and search my car. Oh, You don't have any vehicles? I mean, you don't have any guns with you, ma'am? I am not a police officer. (laughs) They would take, like, the fucking uh, mirrors. Mirrors. Yeah. Oh, it's so fucking stupid. I mean, it's not, but it is. It was very... It's annoying, but... It's annoying. It's necessary. It's an, yeah, necessary. I read one soldier say, learn the dog-faced soldier song and love it, as the third ID revels in its prestigious hitch. I don't know what they claim is prestigious. I mean, if you've ever been to Fort Seward, it's a bunch of pine woods. Okay? I don't feel like that's super prestigious. But I get... I get it. I get it. Maybe. <laughs> Do you want to play the um, dog-faced soldier song, Jimmy, for memories? Soldiers, okay. It's kind of a dumb one. I mean, it's great. 
<laughs> Almost 16,000 military personnel are currently stationed at the fort, and more than 3,000 civilians are employed by the military at this fort, particularly. Many of the units are rapid deploying, meaning they are constantly in cycles of deployment worldwide. For example, the 1st Armored Brigade of Fort Stewart was deployed just a week after Ukraine was invaded. So they have to be ready all times. Soldiers are always ready to heed the call of duty, but this comes at a very heavy price. In, even in the time of Igigi, soldiers were afraid to speak about PTSD versus today's military, where treatment is less stigmatized. They would worry about their careers and, you know... Shell shock was not an honorable thing to suffer. While Jimmy thankfully only deployed once while I was there, I will say that the sacrifice made by soldiers and families is heartbreaking as soldiers return home either in body bags or with severe trauma in tow. This rapid deploying lifestyle is quite hectic and at the heights of the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as during the operation Enduring Freedom, the recruitment and the amount of soldiers enlisted was burgeoning. With the fear of death in the line of the duty, many soldiers lived a YOLO lifestyle. You know, this might be my last fucking party. Oh, yeah. When uh, I lived in Germany, I worked at Landstuhl, which was the big German hospital there, which was the first place a lot of guys came when they got stabilized from war. Mm, yes. And they used to have bluebirds come in. We had a bluebird every day with guys come in. And um, you go down to the dining hall and the guys would be down there getting food that were all the soldiers, sailors, etc. And... There were guys that were just blown to bits and barely had any body, so to speak. Like, I remember one guy had one arm left. The yeah. other two legs and arm were gone. And he's down there, like, and when you're working in an environment like that, I remember, like, my first instinct was to go over there and, like, offer help with him getting his food. But then I had to remember he's here learning to do it by himself, and he probably does not want me going over there to help him. He's trying to learn to regain his you Yeah, know, and for somebody who has, you know, such... I mean, a soldier, a man of the strong, and then here you are having to have someone help feed you. Like, I'm sure that had to be. When we had to take a bunch of training over caregiver PTSD, and I remember when we did, I was like, this is stupid. How am I going to get PTSD? I'm not the one that went to war. I'm not the one that had this. But when you see it day in and day out, it it is very traumatizing to see because you think of what they went through and so on and so forth. So to be that person that went through it, I can only imagine. Oh, yeah. They would depend on alcohol severely and even drugs, even though you do get random drug tests quite often. I feel like Jimmy got picked up for every time, and he's too lame for that, okay? <laughs> when I was in law enforcement support at the time, it wasn't uncommon to see a soldier come into our jails for a DUI and stay enlisted due to the need of soldiers at the time. Because we had not drawn down when I was working at the sheriff's office and withdrawing troops quite yet. That only started like when Jimmy came over. That was like the first phases of it. As time went out and we started withdrawing from these countries, they became harder on the rules and more serious about enforcing things. But it really was a free-for-all feeling at Fort Stewart with the rigid edges of the military. I recall a soldier who actually came home from deployment on R&R. And, like, sometimes I would have two weeks, sometimes they'd have a month. And to come out of a really active war zone and then home where everyone's acting like nothing's wrong. And you have all this adrenaline every day and you have none. It becomes like this torture in a way. And he got really drunk and he uh, ended up taking out like four mailboxes. He didn't hurt anyone, thank God. But as soon as he sobered up, he actually went out there on his own and replaced every one of those fucking mailboxes. He was just, you could tell he was fucked up, you know. Mm -hmm. He was trying to cope with whatever way he could at that time. It's not an acceptable excuse, but more of an example of the cost of war. 
Yeah, when my ex came home, he would do really weird things until he, like, got reintegrated back in. Like, he would um, meticulously, like, fold his laundry and and put it like he was still over there. Mm -hmm. And everything was still, like, had to be on a very strict schedule when he first came home. He didn't necessarily apply it to me and the kids, but he, had like, had to go by it. And I finally asked him one day, I'm like, you know you can, like, chill and relax and you're back home. And he's like, I'm back home, but I'm not back home. Yeah. You know, and... My mind hasn't made it here yet. Yeah. And it took him a while. And I was just like, okay, do whatever you need to do to get yourself right. I'm not going to pester you. I'm not going to say anything about it because whatever you're dealing whatever with you there, you know. Out, yeah. And the guys don't really talk about it, you know. Yeah. Over time, little bits of things will come out here or there. But they don't talk about it. So they just hold it all in and they do these what we consider weird things. Mm -hmm. Because to me, it was weird that he did that. But I'm like, whatever, you need to cope, bro. Oh, yeah. Like. One of the coping mechanisms for Jimmy was being a dick. (laughs) Uh, He just, well, like, he's such a soft person. We all know this. And he's funny and he's creative. He's not really a soldier soldier. He's definitely an intel analyst. He's a computer nerd. But being over there, he was in a Ford operating base, or they call him FOPS. You know that. I'm just saying that for the listeners. Becky's way more knowledgeable than I am, I would have to say. You lived in Germany and shit. I was like that wife that did not give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, his was drawing down, so they didn't really have internet, and things were happening all the time. So when he came home, he was just mean. And I think that was his way of just, like, trying to cope through it and protect himself. Like, this isn't bothering me. Fuck everything, you know? Mm -hmm. He learned real quick that I'm the only asshole in this family. But no, he did (laughs) heal. He... He's it's still a work in progress, but he has definitely made some strides for his own PTSD. It's definitely something that's made me um, a little bit more accepting about other people's issues Mm -hmm. and how people don't think about what's going on in their life. Like people at Fourth of July don't realize how badly it affects veterans for fireworks and things like that, because sometimes those things sound like mortars Well, people who have no experience with the military. I remember when I came home after being in Germany and visiting with my friends and I was kind of sharing some of the things I had seen at the hospital and they were like, guys are still getting hurt over there? And I'm like, what? Yeah. Yeah, hundreds a day. And they were like, no, all that's not still going on. Like they were completely and totally just- Like after the invasion, it was all uh rainbows and fucking butterflies, but it wasn't. Oblivious to it. And I'm like, wow. And it made it where, like, I didn't care too much to go home after that because I loved these people. You know, they were my friends, but they had stayed in the small town their whole life and they had never ventured out anywhere and had no clue what was going on. And to be honest, it kind of, like, pissed me off. And But I'm like, I can't be pissed at them because they live in their little box and their little bubble. But for fuck's sakes, you know. And there's, like, all this misinformation about what these soldiers go through, like you said. And then how people treat them mm-hmm. i had a relative of mine go jimmy's still dealing with ptsd he's not over that that's not a thing you get over yeah that is lifetime trauma yeah you know i get it baffles me like that it does i'm with you on that one it's also important that we note the culture of soldiers especially in units like 3id they are battle brothers despite race religion or anything else that would make them different from each other they are battle brothers you have your battle buddy that's the person you look out for. If you're watching their back and they're watching yours, everybody's safe. Mm-hmm. They care for each other deeply and share a bond that's universal, almost like an unspoken code. So if you find out that, you know, 
your coworker is army, they're going to have things to talk about. Um, there's that friend that comes to Alicia's. They have her husband who was just really ill. He was a veteran and Jimmy didn't know it. And they just sat there and they had been, acted like they were friends for for life. Like mm-hmm. they had never, like it wasn't like they just met. They known each other this whole time. Yeah. And that's that bonding thing. And the reason I want to state that is because what this group did was completely different than that. Now, while Deidre was overseas, she actually would not speak to anyone because Isaac would constantly claim that she was cheating. He would find out if she spoke to anyone and somehow would know and tell her, like, are you fucking cheating on me? And he told her that I have people watching you over there. They were both military, so it wasn't impossible, but it was very an abusive situation. I bet she was thinking that time. I'm so glad I gave up my future at West Point for this. Mm, Right? I'm so lucky. (laughs) To add insult to injury, he was the one who was actually cheating at this time, acting like a bachelor and dating. Usually, how it always is: the one accusing is the one doing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was dating several women, including a seventeen-year-old high school student. Mm, Classy, right? He got uh, several uh, alcohol and drug violations, but his charming nature and promise of being a great soldier did not affect him career-wise necessarily, as it would others. In December two thousand and ten. Deidre's unit suffered a mortar attack, which is sadly very common. And soldiers in her unit, as well as her, was injured. As a result of her injury, she actually developed an embolism and was sent back to Fort Stewart to heal. Being back at Fort Stewart and having spent nearly none of their marriage together, tensions ran pretty high after such a long separation, followed by being in close proximity at all times. I know you know what that's like, and I know what that's like. It is like... I forgot how Jimmy was so tall while he was gone. Mm-hmm. And I remember that night that he came home, I just look at him like, holy shit, he's huge. You know, mm-hmm. you forget what that person is like. It's annoying having to share a bed. It's weird having that person in your space after a year apart. Well, sometimes people forget how hard it is on the families when they come back too. like you miss them. But, you know, we were in Oklahoma and it was just me and the boys. And so I had a very rigid schedule so that, life could still function with me mm-hmm. by myself. I know family up there or anything. And so when he came home, for lack of better words, he fucked it all up. And I'm like, all right, bro, I, I get your home and you're adjusting, but you can't come up in here like fucking stuff up. Because yeah. I've been doing this for a year and it's the only way I know how to cope as the same as what he was doing was how right. he knew how to cope. And I don't think families get enough credit sometimes for what they go through when the spouse is gone. You know, when you're holding shit down and trying to make life go, it's just as... Especially Part in a different way. If you're in an area that you don't have any family, you know, yeah. and you don't know anybody and you got to do it on your own. When we moved to Augusta, he had to go to Germany for a couple months right after we got there. And I was like, I worked a job where I had to work late and on weekends and daycare is only Monday through fucking Friday. So I ended up having to have some of his military friends watch our kid for us mm-hmm. because I literally did not have anyone else. Mm-hmm. It's very very isolating and it is kind of traumatic in its own way you know you have the person that is your life partner taken from you you know because they were contracted to do that yeah and then you have to figure out how to come back together he was actually still accusing her adultery um, and tried quite a while to get her to participate in one of his favorite things sexual bondage she did not want to do that for a long time don't i don't blame her everybody likes different things and then when she finally was like, you know what, let's give it a shot, he was like, see, I knew you were cheating. 
I knew you were fucking cheating because now you you tried it with somebody else and now you want to try it with me? Uh, when really all it was was like a, you know how like people. You wore do, me down. <laughs> yeah, like you wore me down. You know, like people are like, oh, we should try swinging and the one partner doesn't want to do it and they finally break down to do it and it's like miserable for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> she did not do that because she wanted to. She did it because she was trying to save her marriage. Yeah. She ended up kicking him out. And in the spring of 2011, she filed a protective order and a report that he was making her have sex with people and, and with ways she did not want. So I don't have any more information on that. I don't really want more information about that, to be honest. I just mm -hmm. hate that she went through that. By June of 2011, they find out that Deidre is five months pregnant. And both seem very excited to save their marriage and have a child together. A huge shift from their previous behaviors. They had adopted an orange cat named Hobbs and planned to call the baby boy Calvin in homage to Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip. Super cute. That is kind of adorable. <laughs> On July 17, 2011, a call came into police for a non-responsive female. It was Deidre. No. He tried to wake her up and rushed her to the ER, and uh, they worked on her for about an hour and tried to save the baby, but it didn't work. Agigi told another soldier that the doctors believed a blood clot had killed Deidre, and she had suffered an embolism in Iraq, so it wasn't like... Unheard of. Unheard of, you know. At her funeral, he was withdrawn and he avoided her parents. The grief was not enough, though, to keep him from visiting the Army office in charge of death benefits just two days after her death. As the spouse of a soldier who died on active duty, people don't might not know this readily, but he was entitled to half a million dollars. Mm -hmm. I remember Jimmy telling me that he's like, so if I die over there, you get, and if he had like one on top of that one. Mm -hmm. You already get half a million dollars, but then you get, you have your other ones that you pay for. When they're in combat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, I'm probably worth more alive than dead. And how I worth knew I loved him. alive. Yeah, that's right. How I knew I loved him was I was like, I'd rather have you than the money. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing they failed to mention like about that is like a double-edged sword about him going to do the death benefits. Is I explicitly remember when... The boy's dad deployed. We had to go to all these like meetings and crap. Oh, yeah. And one of them said within two days, you get $25,000 of that money. And it's to pay for the funeral and everything. Mm -hmm. And so um, sometimes when they say that, it's like, well, you also forget that there are costs that have to be paid. So sometimes you can't stop the grief to not plan a funeral. That as a light. Well, they went two days later. Yeah, because you know how much a motherfucking funeral costs, bro? <laughs> A but lot. she was also military, so that should have all been covered under her military shit if she was buried, I believe. I don't know, though. Don't quote me on that. That's true. Mm. Anywho, carry on. So, I just, you know, I'm a devil's advocate. I, I like know. to play devil's advocate. He, um, within the first couple days after that, he got an initial payment of $100,000. And that was for the funeral, which I'm like, you spent 100000 on funerals. Please, just put me in a fucking box. Burn me. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Don't be spending money on my dead body. Roast me at a bonfire like a pig on a thing. I don't fuck. care. We've heard. We taste like pork. Give it a shot. <laughs> don't eat me. I'm just kidding. Don't eat me. <laughs> a geeky came under suspicion, but in the fall of 2011, a military examiner ruled that the cause of her death couldn't be determined. So there really wasn't anything they could do. Isaac was sent back to the barracks as a single soldier, and he began to party like crazy, visiting 
strip clubs, throwing kegger parties, the works. And you would think, how's that happening at a barracks? It does. Oh, it does. I would go. You're not Jennifer supposed to. Jennifer was a barracks rat. <laughs> I was. You're not supposed to sleep in barracks. You're not. But we lived like an hour. But technically it was. I mean, I would come and hang out in the barracks. You're not supposed to sleep. But it's against the rules. But I would in that tiny ass little twin bed with him. And it was like a twin foam mattress with like a with pleather. With Jimmy or. With Jimmy. <laughs> yeah. With the pleather. Like when you laid down, it was like. <laughs> but you would get up. The next morning, and they would be playing, like, they always had shit on the intercom. And you'd see people laying out in the fucking yard. And, like, coolers. And Basically, shit. like, a college dorm frat house. Oh, abso-fucking-lutely. And it, it was nothing to see soldiers walking around with, like, their undershirts, like, the tan undershirts at the time. <laughs> and, like, their panties. <laughs> I remember Jimmy sent me a picture where he was on um, CQ duty. And it's, like, some extra duty that they have to do. Uh, overnight and it was like a guy in his underwear and t-shirt and tennis shoes and another guy also halfway dressed and they were both playing on like an Xbox in a hallway on top of a fold-out table. It was the wildest shit. But of course, I mean, this is, we're still talking about these people who are going back and forth to war from a rapid deploying unit. So they're like, you know what? Let's throw it down. So he actually had some Stripper girlfriends who he paid the bills for. And uh, he, he was... With his dead wife's money? Uh, yeah. Excuse me. I would haunt the shit out of you. Yeah. I will haunt your penis so you can't get it up ever again. <laughs> Fuck tapping on windows and turning on lights. <laughs> Why well, my dick come up? Not even with Viagra. That's <laughs> right. Haunted bitch. That's right. Pay some other bitch's bills. <laughs> he would start... He started smoking spice, snorting bath salts, and cocaine. And taking copious amounts of ecstasy. Jesus Christ. Shortly before her death, he accidentally um, fired a handgun as he was trying to unload it. And he was given a demerit known as an Article 15. This term refers to Article 15 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Soldiers who violate it can have their rank reduced or be assigned um, punishment duties. So They he, used to take money. Mm-hmm. They, I think they still do. Still do. Used to take, back in the day, I don't know how many, it was like 250 bucks. We're talking a while ago. That was a, and that was. A I would have killed Jimmy. Like, excuse me. Or take rank, like like you said. Article 15s would be handed out like nobody's business, though, for a long time. And then when they started drawing things down and reducing how much military we have, Article 15 started to get real fucking serious. <laughs> <laughs> but he, this happened bef- right before her death, and so he didn't serve his punishment until after her death. He was already the lowest rank as private. So he was restricted to the barracks for two weeks and got 45 days of corrective training tasks, which is like scraping gum, mm-hmm. cutting the grass with scissors and shit, like really outlandish stuff. And um, this was just after Deidre's death. He was angry that he had to serve his punishment so quickly after her death, and he complained that the military's ridicule and restrictions. He claimed that the army had killed his wife by prescribing her drugs that called a fatal blood clot. So let me get this right. You want to use your wife's death as woe as me about serving your punishment for Article 15, but there's no woe as me when you're out partying with the strippers and paying their bills. Okay, yeah. cool, 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 cool. Excuse me. I am. These cool. are my emotional Ring. support strippers. <laughs> <laughs> After Deidre's death, he began to connect with other disgruntled soldiers, targeting those who were trouble or emotionally vulnerable. And the quote, he said, 
I notice that the vast majority of soldiers on extra duty have a deficiency of some sort. This is when he becomes close to Private Christopher Salmon. Do you want to know what his nickname is? Of course. Fish. Oh, Jesus. But it's spelled like um, P-H-I-S-H. So (laughs) original. Great creativity there, boys. I feel like it was it um, the one from the other story where he like had a bad leg or something. And he's like, Hoppy. Hoppy. (laughs) (laughs) Like, are you guys friends? Are you guys friends? He met... Fish, and his wife, Heather. Fish had been caught committing travel voucher fraud in Iraq and was assigned extra duty as punishment, and his wife, Heather, had been recently discharged from the Army for prescription drug abuse. Also, note this at the time, she was pregnant. Awesome. Yeah. That baby wanted some Xanax? Duh, it was stressed. Rolling. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a little club in there. (laughs) It always amazes me that people like that make it through the process of the military and, like, get in. For real. At first, Heather wasn't sure about him, but after Deidre's death, she felt sorry for him and allowed them to crash at their home. She said, He came to my house and never really left. One night turned into a week, a week turned into a month. He took over the couch and then moved into his own room. He also met 19-year-old Michael Rourke at the time. Rourke wanted to be called to Iraq, but the call never came, and he began to collect demerits. He was disciplined for fighting and reckless driving, and at one point, his handgun was confiscated. Agigi treated Rourke as his errand boy, giving him his debit card to pick up groceries, guns, and drugs. Agigi met Michael Burnett as well, who was fixing the squad's computers. Burnett was going through a difficult divorce and was raising a one-year-old son. They began smoking together in the pit, favored by soldiers of the rear guard. And after Burnett received an Article 15 for possessing an unregistered handgun, the two spent more time together because they're fucking punished together. He would invite Burnett to dinner several times, and Burnett would refuse. Eventually, he caved because he felt bad for him, and he shared his anger at the Army. He began hanging out there. Um, I'm so on, confused how it's the Army's fault that they broke these rules, but whatever. Uh, is, that's what I was thinking. So they all hung out at the Salmon's house, the, at Fish. Fish's house. Let's, call um, him his fi- Let's just call him Fish. Because <laughs> that's be so Fish. cool. He would be, they would hang out there. That was like their meeting ground. Burnett said, Isaac is extremely smart and charismatic. At first, you don't see the charisma. He doesn't show it show that until you're close to him. At one point in our relationship, it was like he was my little brother, but he was manipulating everyone, including myself. On leave in September, he visited High Mountain Hunting Supply Shop in Central Washington, and he spent $32,000 on 14 guns, including high-powered rifles and other military hardware. The hell did he have $32,000 when he was an E1? Oh, that's the death money. Oh, that's right. That's right. I forgot. Mm-hmm. A relative, um, knowing that Deidre had just passed and that he might be going through a rough time, was really concerned about it. So he told the police about it. The police actually referred the matter to the FBI in Spokane, Washington, and the Army CID in Tacoma. FBI investigated the purchase, which was legal in a state that was avidly embracing the Second Amendment. And relayed misgivings to its counterparts in Georgia and at Fort Stewart with gun control. The authorities decided that since it was legal, and since he had been subjected to several background checks, as most military intelligence has clearances that required extreme background checks, that he was fine, so no action was taken. It's cool, it's cool, it's cool. He showed Burnett an article in a video game magazine called Game Informer, which served as a kind of manifesto. The article about a game called Rainbow Six Patriots began with the words... 
Americans are angry in red letters. In the game, an elite counterterrorist root group, Team Rainbow, fights a coalition of domestic militias called the True Patriots. The game's creator, David Spears, says in the article that True Patriots leader intends to become a martyr, believing that people look at him as the founding father of a new country in which people have embraced the civil liberties that are granted to them in the Constitution. The counterterror officers are presented as the game's heroes, but a number of scenes show an affinity with the malicious populist rage. So, like, there was one scene where um, it was, like, a really rich real estate investor, and he came in, like, these soldiers came in, they're like, oh, so you made a lot of money off poor people, and they, like, strapped a um, bomb to his chest and all this. It's really wild. After extra duty one night, a geeky remembers Fish telling him, the leader of the resistance in the game was identical to how he envisioned me. We could do this, Salman said. I'll follow you to hell, brother. Which is not uncommon, you know. I'll follow you to hell and back. Got your six. Maybe not with this, though. Yeah. This was when his network, a disaffected soldier, started to think of itself as a militia. The group became a haven for them. He named his group Fear, which stood for Forever Enduring, Always Ready. He said, I believe most Americans shared my beliefs. They're just afraid to show it. The only way to overcome all fear is to become something everyone else fears. This was a way to give the country back to its citizens and destroy the government. The militia would have no spring structure. It would be like a bike club. Whenever people say bike club, I always think about a bunch of people in Schwinn's, not motorcycle. <laughs> Here's the, everybody has this grand idea. I'm going to create this group, and we're going to have no structure. Everybody can just do what they want. Nothing works when there is no structure. It There's doesn't. St structure for a reason. Yeah. There has to be structure. Can't everybody just be going and doing what the fuck they want all the time when they want? Then you don't really have a group, do you? No. I am an anti-government type of gal. I hate how involved the government is in our day-to-day -day lives. But True. It is necessary in some ways that we cannot live without these. If mm -hmm. Oregon has been any indication of what happens when you don't exactly. have that structure, there it is right there. People are miserable in Portland right now. I'm sorry, you guys who are in Oregon. <laughs> Hope it gets better. There would be an elite platoon called 666. The militia is not allowed to know what the 666 does, he said, only that, that it's an honored platoon to be part of. My thing is, like, I know that the Navy SEALs, they go out and they have, like, hell week. They train. They go in. They're, like, reconnaissance and undercover. We just not going to know what 666 is doing? And I'm not going to be a part of anything that you can't tell me that what it is I'm a part of. Yeah, I'm not joining that shit. No. No. I need I, to know what I'm signing up for, okay? Exactly. At least an outline. Throw me, like, a Excel spreadsheet or something. Well, there's not going to be one of those because there's no structure. That's right. That's right. Who's going to make the Excel spreadsheet? <laughs> nobody. Because nobody a fucking, has a fucking job or a duty. This is like a bike club. Schwinn's for everybody. <laughs> he planned to buy 90 acres in Washington State and build a compound for the militia. He said, I have a Minuteman militia that's being built. I have guns. I have money. I'm the fucking boss. You don't want to fuck with me. I'm nuts. I'm the nicest murderer you'll ever meet. Mm, that's scary. They devised an emblem for fear. An overlapping alpha and omega that resembled an anarchy symbol, which he engraved on weapons and had tattooed. Other members also got this tattooed on them. He began to use the Rainbow Six article to evaluate potential recruits in an initiation process he called the Awakening. New members brought in new knowledge and techniques. One was Sergeant Anthony Peden. He was a sniper in the Army. 
he had returned from Iraq with PTSD and was going through a bitter divorce. His truck had been repossessed, so he often stayed with Burnett to get around. As an Army Cavalry scout, he deployed twice to Afghanistan and one to Iraq between 2006 and 2011. So one, two, three, four, like bap, 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 bap. He suffered multiple brain injuries from explosions he survived. Jimmy himself actually got a concussion from an explosion. I did not know that till like four or five years after he left Afghanistan. He was like, that reminds me of that time I got a concussion. Like, the fuck? <laughs> he was actually using heroin at this time to ease his pain at the time of the murders. He then taught Agigi to make bombs with PVC pipe, nails, and gunpowder, as well as training other members on shooting techniques because he was a sniper. He would show, Agigi would show the article, the Rainbow Six article, to potential recruits and then decide, based off their response, if he was going to invite them to a militia. Like, if they go and read this and be like, fuck yeah, this sounds great. Like, all right, now's the time. If they don't. Yeah, if they read it and they're like, what the fuck is this shit? Where'd yeah. you find this? And then go like, not for them. <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of where Jiminy. 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 <laughs> Jiminy Cricket fits in. <laughs> you know, as we know, his divorce was particularly rough. And he himself would have been one of those disenchanted soldiers. When he got to Fort Stewart. Everybody had been deployed in his unit. So he was in the rear guard, Jimmy. Is that what it's called? Rear guard? Rear attachment. Rear attachment. So they're the fellas that stay behind and keep shit running. There's not a whole lot of them. And so as a military intelligence analyst, you would think he's, you know, in doing like all that military stuff. But no, he was actually um, doing mail. Yeah. He would get there, open the mail and stuff in the morning, go back and do afternoon mail. (laughs) So like... You know, and then he had his terrible divorce going on. So life was not exactly P.G. Keen in the a middle lot of, guys of the times. Too. And, you know, I don't want to speak for Jimmy um, per se, but a lot of them that get stuck behind don't, they feel like they're not there with their people. They're not there doing the mission. They're the guys behind doing this shit. And it, it messes with them too, just as much not being there as it does being there. Oh, absolutely. He actually was invited a couple times over to these barbecues that they would have. He does not remember them ever showing him an article. He also has terrible memory. We all know that. It, that's part of his PTSD. His brain has dumped things and it's not good at remembering as a trauma response. Well, and if he seen it and thought it was stupid, I could see it being something that you just like forgot. Yeah. You know? And he's like, he just remembers going over there. And like I told you earlier, like soldiers are already really good to each other most of the time. But this was a love bomb. They were going like, man, you're amazing, this, that, and the other. You're like the best. Thank you for coming over. You're so cute. <laughs> I love it when you wear your classes. <laughs> but he felt like something. Your boots are so shiny. <laughs> How'd you do that? Was that a spit shine? Oh, my God. Can I wear your dog tags? <laughs> like a friendship bracelet (laughs) being that he felt like this was off which jimmy is already socially awkward uh so he was never noticed that before this ain't my vibe never went back yeah because he is not one to love bomb no that is i bet if 
if that would have been JJ, he would have been sweating so oh, much yeah. through his <laughs> trying to love Bob the back. You're amazing. You're amazing. <laughs> he would have been so dehydrated from the attention and the amount of sweat he profusely sweated as everybody was staring at him talking to exactly. him. <laughs> at this time, he the guys from Fear had visited a local Hinesburg, Georgia store, gun store and spent sixteen thousand dollars on sixteen guns, including a Taurus revolver known as the Judge. Isaac would start to abuse drugs even more and claim to suffer from schizophrenia that he had multiple personalities, which schizophrenia does not have multiple personalities, correct? No. That's well, a bipolar. Being diagnosed multiple, with multiple personalities is a whole separate thing than any of those. I think he was like, schizophrenia sounds good. I have multiple personalities. Well, yeah, people like to lay the multiple personalities down because then they can uh, say they weren't account responsible for what happened because it was you know Susie not them exactly yeah this is a quote from him I created Gray the first voice who taught me to play a game of alternate realities to occupy my dying mind he wrote then another voice emerged the distillation of all anger confusion hurt hatred and betrayal that I felt and that voice was Loki and that Gray would act as a medium point for a geeky the voice of reason so a geeky was the good Loki was the bad Gray was the middle he came up with the idea of splitting fear into a white self and black cell to mirror the divide between himself and Loki, which I was like, how lame are you? Yeah. Sorry. I was like, such a nerd. Let me just name it after fucking Loki. The white cell would be responsible for legit operations, which include medical teams to support the militia, and the black cell would perform illegal activities such as assassination and theft. His larger goal was to overthrow the U.S. government and give the country back to the people on July 17, 2031, the 20th anniversary of Deidre's death. They also, this also spurred his paranoia and would be suspicious of people stealing money from him. He instated Heather Salmon to be in charge of his finances, and that's when she discovers several thousand dollars missing by then. She said that he had barely two, um, $2,000 remaining, and he continued to spend Ten tens of thousands on guns, drugs, and strip clubs. So he's, like, running out of money. Slap out of it. He'd always been, like, super generous money. There was a lot of soldiers that were also interviewed that were in this area that were like, I couldn't afford Christmas, you know, so he gave me his debit card and said, go buy my daughter Christmas, you know, or I didn't have groceries, so they bought this, you know. His monthly salary... That's an E1, was $1,500. Mm-hmm. But the majority of his generosity came from the death benefit money. Militia members became convinced that Rourke, who had unfettered access to Agigi's credit card, had stolen between $10,000 and $30,000, which I'm like, that's a big 10 and 30? That's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Turns out Rourke had recently rented a storage building and that they surmised he'd been stealing guns and money and putting them in there. In late November, Agigi decided that Rourke and his girlfriend, Tiffany York, needed to be killed. Rourke because he had stolen from fear, and York because Rourke had told her everything. It started off as a conversation about punishment and devolved into something much darker. To lure Rourke to the Salmon's house, Agigi had instructed Burnett to invite him to go night shooting. However, when he showed up, he also had his girlfriend, Tiffany, along unexpectedly. To buy time, Agiki told Rourke and York, I hate that their names rhyme. I know. To go pick up provisions, which meant like going to a local like uh, smoke shop and getting like random shit to smoke. After they left, Agiki debated the girl's fate with his four counselors. 
Heather and Burnett argued that she should be spared. Peden said that she was far too dangerous to be kept alive, and Salmon agreed. It was tied to Gigi wrote, and he cast the designing vote to kill her. When Rourke and York returned, the other members of Fear, Agigi, Peden, Salmon, and Burnett, or Fish, I should say Fish, got into Agigi's Jeep. He, Agigi left his phone behind, and as they drove, they communicated back and forth between the two vehicles with a two-way radio. So Rourke and his girlfriend in one vehicle, everybody else in the other. He wanted to leave the area because of the location of his home, so he wouldn't have this nearby and be mm-hmm. suspicious. So Rourke, and they were all just like going to hang out. So they're like, let's just go hang out. And he's like, where are we going to fucking kill him? We can't do it here. Right. Not by the house. Rourke suggested a place near Morgan Lake, which is outside nearby Ludawissi, a.k.a. Ludashitty. (laughs) I remember. It's a tiny ass town. It's got like one fucking light. I think it's a four-way stop light or something. It's not even anything that fancy. Some uh, military members from Fort Seward do live there. It's a little bit of a haul. But it's usually cheaper than living mm-hmm. right in Hinesville because in Hinesville, people do take advantage of soldiers. Oh, yeah. Every, every outside of every oh, base yeah. is like that. Once the, both the vehicles arrived and came to a complete stop, Peden got out of the vehicle, walked to the passenger side of Rourke's car, opened the door, and shot York in the head with the judge pistol. He reached down, checked her pulse, and shot her again. They got Rourke out of the car, and Isaac told him that... Quote, the only reason Tiffany had to be executed was because he had failed to follow instructions. As Agigi interrogated him, Rourke revealed that the location and combination of the storage locker, he admitted he had taken money, but that it had been spent. Peden handed Fish the judge, and he pointed it at the back of Rourke's head and shot. As they returned to the Jeep, Peden told Fish to double tap, so he walked back and fired a second shot into Rourke's head. At the Salmons, they stripped and put their clothing in a black garbage bag, and they rehearsed alibis. Agigi emphasized that they should stick together and not do anything out of the ordinary, so the next day, they gathered for a barbecue at Peden's home off base. In the backyard, they built a bonfire to burn the bag of clothing, which also contained the spent shells from and a cell phone, most likely the one that Rourke left at the Salmons' house. They tried to act like everything was cool, you know, and Agigi acted like this was like any other day, and it was just an annoyance. He had wore like a pair of shoes and he was like, oh, shit, I didn't realize I was going to have to burn these. And I really liked them. Oh, well, like that was the worst part of it to him. Like, fuck. The day after the killings, a local hunter stumbled across the bodies of Rourke and York. At first, he saw a dark gray Nissan Altima with the driver's door open. And I remember from the article, it was funny because the guy goes, you see a, a vehicle middle nowhere, you think they're so hanky panky. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, there is none here. <laughs> he saw the body of a young man on the ground, curled up on his right side, his feet near the rear tire. He called the police, and when they arrived, they found a teenage girl in the passenger seat with gunshot wounds to her head. The driver had been shot in the head twice. As the police investigated the scene, the girl's cell phone kept ringing, listing the same contact, Mom. And they were quickly identified as work in York. So it didn't take long for the GBI to find Isaac. GBI is the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And it was just a day after the bodies were found that they went over to Isaac. He provided an alibi for all the members of being at the Salmon home eating dinner and watching movies. And Heather supported this alibi. They were still suspicious, however, as the ATF had advised them of the arsenal that the group had been collecting because it had been reported before. And 
they raised concerns that they were planning on doing something radical. And the army also let them know that they investigated a Gigi for conspiracy to commit murder against his wife. In Rourke's locker at that time, agents found a Tannerite explosive, a galvanized pipe with smokeless black powder and wires, and weapons engraved with the fear emblem. Even though they were supposed to be close, the group members had sent disquieting texts such as, someone else is going to get it, and another one to take care of. So, like, you know you're under investigation, so I'm going to send some vague-ass shit over text like nobody's <laughs> fucking reading that? Tip shits. Of course. We always say you get caught because you talk too much. S- loose lips sink, sink ships. ships. And these these kids were military. They know that saying. <laughs> oh, God. They screamed that shit just at, about at FRG. And I remember <laughs> when Jimmy was supposed to come home, they would... The soldiers sometimes would tell you, like, oh, we're going to be headed home, but don't announce it. Some fucking idiot, mm-hmm. of course, always announces it, and then they have to delay their return. Like, he had, like, three or four return dates that kept getting fucked up because, and then they, we kind of didn't know until they were already on the way home. Yeah. Because, I mean, if they find out that there's going to be a whole shit ton of soldiers in a plane, then it becomes a big Liability. opportunity to kill a bunch of people. Yeah. You know? You just don't talk about it. It's called OPSEC. Exactly. Learn it, live it, love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that to people. I'm like, I see them in practice in your OPSEC. And they're like, well, I don't know what that is. And I'm like, mm, well, maybe you should learn. <laughs> <laughs> A few days after the murders, Isaac was worried that the police were onto us. Prepared to make a run to Washington State, he packed a bag and set it by the door. One night... He got a call from his commanding officer for an emergency formation at 0900. He got calls one after the other. One thing you don't do is not answer the phone for your commanding officer. You just don't. You listen. If your sergeant texts you, hey, we need you to be here and here, you better fucking answer. Oh, I thought you said you don't answer. I'm like, no, no, that's exactly the opposite of you do yeah. answer. <laughs> so, like, he tried to ignore it at first, then finally got through. And he's like, uh, Fish says, man, I think they're going to arrest us. So every morning, the third ID sings dog-faced soldier, but this day was different. Instead, they called the names Agigi, Peden, Burnett, and Salmon. They were all separated and questioned, and for such a family, they crumbled quick. Oh, well, they always do. Peden came out first, which is the sniper, okay? He's the one who was like, she's a risk, blah, 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 blah. He came He's out- the one that should have, like, the most training under torturous situations to not divulge information. And he's like... And he sounded like a canary. I'm so scared that he's going to kill me or my son. And, and he's then, probably killed people before, too, so. Oh, yeah. And then Burnett, he was the next one to fold, but he seemed like he was relieved to talk. And then the Salmons actually did stick to their story. <laughs> I was like, look at them. You would think they would fold first because they're the married couple. No, they were like, no, 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 no. He's eating dinner, watching movies. Nobody can, no killing here. <laughs> Agigi tried uh, as well to maintain his story, but the investigators let him know that they were talking, and he broke down and confessed. He placed the much of the blame on Peden, who he said pushed the group to tie up loose ends. This also brought up Deidre's mysterious death. A civilian medical examiner revisited the autopsy report and photographs and determined that Deidre had died of asphyxiation, most likely from a chokehold. After a call to 911, police did look over the scene. On the bed, the investigators found handcuffs, Kama Sutra cards, 
detailing sexual positions and a book on the female orgasm, a sex toy without a battery, and lubricant. The CID special agent, Justin Kapanis, believed that the scene was staged. It looked like the cards were deliberately laid there, he testified. It seemed excessive. He was able to finally be charged with murder. Prosecution highlighted two texts sent the day of Deidre's death. And one, Deidre told Agigi that she needed money back in her account. And then the other, he was texting his girlfriend, Samantha Cox, Baby, you want to know something sexy? I'm not working another day, baby. We'll have plenty of money. All I need is your body whenever I want it. What a idiot. I am so glad that you got fucking caught. I need to look this guy up. What's the name of the militia again? I know you've been saying it the whole time. F-E-A-R. I thought it was, I thought I, I heard you call it something else earlier. Sorry, go ahead. Carry on, I just want to see what this guy looks like. <laughs> Agiki's friend, Michael Schaefer, actually testified that Agiki had at first told him his wife died from a blood clot. And then about a month later, after they had been up all night using cocaine, they got into an argument. Schaefer said he asked his friend, point blank, what really happened to his wife. Quote, he told me he had strangled her with a bag. He handcuffed her, put a bag over her head and strangled her while also sex- sexually assaulting her. At the same, all doing all this at the same time? And she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. Awesome. What he originally told police was, we had sex. She was into bondage. That's why she had all these bruises. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I went to go take a nap, and she lay down on the couch. And when I woke up, she was not responsive. Did he leave her bondaged up while he uh, went and took a nap? I don't know. No, he, she, he put her on the couch, apparently. Oh, okay. In July 2013, Ringling and Geeky pleaded guilty to malice murder, felony murder, criminal gang activity, aggravated assault, and using a firearm while committing a felony. He was sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole. In March of 2014, he was convicted of murdering his pregnant wife and unborn child back in 2011. He was sentenced to a second life sentence with no possibility of parole. And he's at uh, Fort Leavenworth. Mm-hmm. Salmon pleaded guilty to malice murder in April 2014 and accepted a sentence of life in prison with no chance of parole. Heather Salmon took a plea deal and was sentenced to 20 years in prison after pleading guilty to voluntary manslaughter. She still to this day says that she did not know that this was going to happen. She just happened to be around it. Okay. Even though she was literally watching children so they could go do it that night. In May 2014, Peden pleaded guilty to malice murder and received a life sentence that included the possibility of parole after 30 years in prison. On February 2016, Burnett was sentenced to eight years in prison and 40 years of court supervision. Additional defendants pled to lesser charges of illegally purchased guns, theft, and selling drugs in order to purchase guns and land to set up a compound in Washington State. So he actually um, agreed to testify and tell the whole fucking story in exchange to get less time. And I want to leave this story with a quote and this is from a geeky. And he was talking um, to an agent at the time. You ever think how Dr. Frankenstein thought when Frankenstein ripped his first person in half, a geeky asked the agent, Dear Jesus, what have I created? All he wants to do is go back to that moment before he brought it to life. And the agent asked, What's the monster? And he sobbed, I think it's me. Mm. Uh, he's still in prison. He still thinks that he's, you know hot shit he loves when people investigate he's a fuck and we'll talk about everything you should have wrote him got a story that's too close to home <laughs> <laughs> hey do you remember my husband 
that you're trying to recruit into your weird cult. <laughs> and I, when we were dating, it was right after all, like, I know when we were dating, that's when they were, like, questioning everyone. And it was before the trials. And Jimmy had told me kind of about it. And it was in the news. And I'm, like, one of those people that, like, I do love true crime. But it's not very often that I will take look further into something that's happening at the moment. You don't have all the details. It's never really a, a, a clear picture. No. And I'd rather wait until, you know, either it's hits to a cold case or we have more information to look for a missing person or it's closed up and we now know all the information. I, It's hard to, to really assess something in the midst of it working, right? So I actually... Did not read a whole a lot into it until now. Like, I did not. I knew that he, they took him out to the woods and killed them. I knew that they were making this militia. He had used all this money to buy all these guns and was doing all these drugs. And that it was a whole group of them. But all these little details. I love that they thought this handful of people were going to be able to take over the U.S. government. <laughs> they are so special. So special. So my sources is the New Yorker, Wikipedia, SBLCenter.org, Florida Times Union, New Georgia Encyclopedia, and Homeschooling's Invisible Children. He was homeschooled for a long time because his parents were super conservative and they were like, we need you to not be learning about evolution and shit. So keep you at home. And so they, they, there is a website that talks about him on homeschools, homeschooling's invisible children about in this situation, how he became a monster and everything. I'm not sure if that's homeschooling's fault other than just his own. So, that's the story of the fear militia. That's very good. Very interesting. I enjoyed that one a lot. Very well done, Jennifer. So, uh, don't forget to subscribe and rate on platforms that you listen to us to. If you're on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, whatever. If you've got time, give us a five star. If you don't want to give us a five star, let me know what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> True. <laughs> it does help us get a little bit more um, attention and more visible for people because we love this and we want to share the sickness with you. And we want new microphones. Yeah. For real. <laughs> these things are like 100 years old. Uh, follow us on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. DM us if you have any of your own too close to home stories. And definitely check out the merch if you want to rep us. True story, bro. And until next time. Stay safe. Keep your head on a swivel. And don't bring it too close to home and have your friends invite you to a barbecue and try to have you join a militia. I told Jimmy he should be proud of himself because he's one of those people that is so sweet and innocent and believes people. The fact that they could not recruit him into a cult. Because they love bombed him. I, they had to come at him with a different approach. Yeah, I'm very proud of him. You could, If people said you didn't do anything else in your life, Jimmy, you didn't join a cult. You've done good so far. It, his life is not over yet, though. He's just shaking his head. He's joined my cult. Yes, he has. He joined my Kool-Aid, bub. <laughs> Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Too Close to Home, don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on most platforms. Follow us on our social media at Too Close Home Pod on Facebook, at Too Close Podcast on Instagram, or if you have your own Too Close to Home experience, shoot us your story at Too Close to Home at Yahoo.com. Thanks for listening.